Welcome to our study on Islam. This is where we're going to begin our discussion with the very, the very genesis, the very start of, uh, I guess behind Christianity, it would be the second fastest growing religion in the world. And, and for those of you who are listening on podcast, we did go through a discussion and uh, some Q&A with some pictures uh, and names of Muslims that I've been associated with. Uh, doing some overseas missions work and um, so forth, but we're not going to include that on the podcast just so that we can uh, protect them because, as many of you know, there there is considerable persecution in Muslim countries and Muslim cultures for those who would uh, leave that religion and become followers of Jesus Christ. So we don't, we're, we're not, you know, thinking that anything would happen, but we just always want to be on the side of good faith and, if at all possible, protect our, um, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in those cultures. So our main idea through these, hopefully, three weeks in studying Islam is, is one driving thought, and that's that simply Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is more than a prophet. We'll see. It's so interesting in Islam that Jesus is considered to be a prophet. So, in other words, with Muslims, Jesus is the good guy. Now, obviously, they don't believe that he is the son of God and everything that we as Christians believe that the Bible teaches him to be, but Jesus is a prophet. John fourteen six. many of us are familiar with that verse. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that's what we're going to try to, to begin from and then go as wide as we can and just kind of gather all of the data into our arms and then hopefully be able to bring it to a close in such a way that we'll be able to engage with Muslims. But just three aspects as we begin here, the three basic spiritual needs of every single person. Number one, the need for truth. Regardless of what people say, even people who don't, who say that they don't believe in truth. Um, you know, an ethical relativist, for example. Someone who would say that it's all up to the individual or the culture. <laughs> you say, what is true? Well, they say, I know what's true. It's whatever is for the culture. So it's even still, those who may deny objective truth still have a driving thought, a driving reason for to try to find what's true. And it's interesting for those of you who have read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he begins there in that first chapter with a discussion that discussions presuppose that there is something such as truth. Because if we're not arguing, or for example, if we are arguing for a point, then that presupposes that there is a point. Now, we may disagree of what that point may be. We may be coming from different sides of the spectrum, but still there is the need for Truth. Secondly, there is a need for a right way of living, or what the Bible calls righteousness. In other words, there, there's got to be some way that we can gauge our lives, not only in this objective thing we call truth, or some people would call it an idea, we know as Christians that it's a person, that Jesus is the truth. But we have to, have to understand, you know, in relation to truth, how am I living my life? Number three, a need for fellowship or proper relationships. A few frequently asked questions on Islam. Number one, does the Quran allow for warfare? Secondly, does Islam endorse violence as a means of propagating the faith, or are those who engage in what we know as jihad 
Are those people simply twisting the Quran, or are they actually being obedient to it? Number three, does the Quran encourage Muslims to commit acts of violence? Number four, how can Islam be based on one man, but not based on him at all? If you read some of the older books on world religions, you'll find that um, Muslims are referred to as Mohammedans. This is books, books that are written by primarily Europeans and, and people from the Western um, mindset. But Muslims strongly disagree with that. They say, we do not worship Muhammad. In fact, they do not. They say, we worship Allah. Number five, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Also, the main question that often comes up on cable television is Islam a religion of peace? And I'm going to give you three statements by three very uh, well-known Politicians, and then we're going to try to compare that with what um, the Quran actually teaches. Number one, statement from George Bush. George W. Bush, the second, quote, Islam is peace. The 9-11 attacks violate the fundamental tenets of the Muslim faith. Tony Blair says, quote, the 9-11 attacks has nothing to do with Islam. And then um, Bill Clinton, I just visit this just an incidental observation George Bush basically gives a, a two-liner, one-liner. Tony Blair gives a strict one-liner. And then here's Bill Clinton's verbose statement. It's just hilarious, the difference there. Number, uh, Bill Clinton says, quote, Many believe there is an inevitable clash between Western civilization and Western values and Islamic civilization and values. I believe this view is terribly wrong. False prophets may use and abuse any religion to justify whatever political objectives they have, even cold-blooded murder. Some may have the world believe that Almighty God Himself, the Merciful, grants a license to kill. But that is not our understanding of Islam. Americans respect and honor Islam. And a question that I would ask right out of the gate is how well George W. Bush, Tony Blair, and Bill Clinton understand Islam. And furthermore, even if they stood it, understood it fully, and yet it did teach violence, would they be honest enough to simply say that? So in other words, for our study, we have to look beyond the rhetoric. We have to look through the words of the politicians and look at what the Quran actually teaches and not what Western politicians may say. Dr. Daniel Ebert said, quote, Failing to understand the Islamic world is to misunderstand the 21st century, basing that statement on a great book called Islam at the Crossroads in page 15. So the importance of studying Islam is absolute because it's in the news, it's, it's all around us. It is an aspect, a major aspect of the 21st century world. Some more questions about Islam <clears throat> in regards to religion as a whole. Don't all religions basically teach the same things? Now, we can say in one sense that virtually every religion teaches some kind of morality, right? Virtually all religions say, here's what you should do, but only Christianity teaches the concept of grace through faith. Religion, if we could, I guess, summarize would be that it teaches salvation by works. Some of you have heard the illustration. Religion says, here's a ladder, God's at the top. Climb the ladder by doing these things, by following these rules. Christianity says God is on the mountain. God came down. God came from heaven to us. 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while the details may differ in regards to religions, the main idea of world religions is that one achieves salvation through a certain set of rules. Whereas Christianity teaches that salvation is by grace, which is a gift, and it's received through faith, and then it's not of works. That is an absolutely revolutionary concept. And I know it seems like such common ground, doesn't it? For those of us that are followers of Jesus, and especially if you've been involved in a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church for years or decades, you're just like, yep, that's the verse. I know it. Give me something new. No, no, wait, wait, wait. That verse, that concept of grace through faith is a revolutionary concept in world religions. It's just not there. But in Christianity, that is the core and it's the foundation. So grace is the central difference between Christianity and all other religions, including Islam. So then another question comes up, and you see, some people say, well, no, Jeff, aren't all religions spread the same way? Well, what we'll see through this study is absolutely not. <clears throat> if you're able to access the notes there on the website, we've got the full um, the full notes there. We're not able to print all of that uh, because you'd be carrying out literally a New York phone book, uh, book every single week. But you basically have the, the timeline there. Um, Abraham receives the covenant from God, uh, founding, I guess, what we could call Judaism or, or the, the, the true worship of God that was completed in Jesus, carried on today through Christianity, somewhere uh, around uh, 2000 B.C. or so. Then in 628, there is the, ver- the birth of Zoroaster uh, in what would be modern-day Iran, uh, sprouting the religion of Zoroastrianism, which held to the oneness of God is not Christian, not true a worship, because I guess we could call it, um, many of you that are that, that love fire, uh, they worship uh, essentially the, the fire as a revelation, or I guess we could say a depiction of God. And then we have Jesus splitting history from A.D. to um, to B.C., and then there is the birth of Muhammad in 570 A.D., the founder of Islam, and then in 610 A.D., Muhammad receives his vision, allegedly from the angel Gabriel, which begun, which began the religion of Islam. And so he was born in 570 A.D. in Mecca. He grew up there, which there, it, during the time he grew up, it was a center of polytheism, and animism. I guess we could say raw paganism was the context in which Muhammad grew up in. So he uh, later married a rich widow, and uh, what he did after uh, marriage is he began to go into the mountains in certain times and, and spend long periods of time in deep contemplation and meditation. And when Muhammad was 40 years old, he allegedly received messages from God through the angel Gabriel. And these uh, messages were later recorded into what we know to be the Quran. But here's just an, a histori- historiographical um, a question we could ask here, is who was with Muhammad when the angel Gabriel spoke? Yeah, right, yeah, no, no one. It was simply him, as opposed to Jesus, whose entire ministry, except for those few times that he got away just to emotionally recharged because Jesus was fully God but fully human 
Jesus' context of ministry, um, in giving that revelation, was with, was with people. So what did Muhammad do once receiving the message from Gabriel? Well, he began to spread the message. And he began to spread it there in Mecca, but he was forced to leave Mecca in 622 <clears throat> A.D. Um, because the, the converts had grown to well over a few thousand. And then he went to Medina. He was forced to go there, and he made converts. And then there was, there was an, agree, an agreement between him and the Jews to where there would be peace. But the Jewish version of the story is that once Muhammad got... <clears throat> To be very powerful, he came to the Jews and said, you either convert or you die. And several hundred Jews were executed there uh, because of uh, they, they, were, they were not willing to convert to Muhammad's uh, alleged revelation from God. The Muslim version of the story is that the Jews had planned an assassination against Muhammad. But it's very interesting that Muhammad was originally persecuted, wasn't he? In Mecca, he was forced out. He, he, he was ex, expunged from the city. He was expelled. He had to leave. But then, instead of doing what Jesus did, as we'll see in our, our message next time, our next study, instead of loving the enemies, Muhammad used that opportunity to say, okay, when I have power, I will convert those um, who are unwilling to convert now. The surah says in uh, chapter 5, verse 58, or the, the, the Quran says, in a surah, if you, this may be confusing. Uh, surah is simply the chapter, and if you see the English transliteration A Y A T an ayat or an ayat, that is the verse. So, but we're just going to say chapter and verse instead of surah and ayat. It says in uh, chapter eight, verse fifty-eight, quote: "If thou fearest treachery from any group, throw back their covenant to them, so as to be on equal terms. For God loveth not the treacherous." So, in other words, according to uh, Muhammad in Islam, even if you suspect the possibility of treachery from one of the parties, you can renege on the covenant. Very convenient. One interesting aspect here from the life of Muhammad is that he, was, he never claimed to be able to work miracles. And he was never seen to work a miracle. And often when we study world religions, whenever religion is started, it is through primarily the testimony of the, the, I guess we could say the the catalyst for that religion, the leader, but also that they were able to work miracles. It says in the Quran, chapter 33, verse 21, that Muhammad is an excellent example or a noble pattern for all Muslims. Now, he was uh, faithful to his work, first wife, Khadijah, until her death, but then after that he married around 12 women, and this hit the news uh, not long after 9-11, uh, Jerry Vines, the pastor of First Baptist of Jacksonville, Florida, made a reference to Muhammad and said that he was a pedophile. News organizations and religious groups blew up, and people, how could you say that? Here's the context in which uh, Dr. Vines' statement was honestly pulled out of context by the media, not fully explained. So one of uh, Muhammad's 12 wives, although Muslim scholars, from what I've read, they disagree as to which ones were actually, or how many were actually wives, and which uh, number was, I guess we could say, uh, would be like a, an Old Testament version of, of a concubine. So one of them, Aisha, was five years old, and she was nine when Muhammad consummated the marriage. 
So married her at five, but, but waited till she was nine to consummate the marriage. Now, it is helpful to note that most Muslims would say that he received special permission from God uh, because most Muslims would re- recognize uh, consummating a marriage for a grown man um, well, well into the middle part of his life. Marrying or consummating with a nine-year-old is, is far, far outside the spectrum of what is acceptable. And then um, he uh, returned to, to Mecca after building a large base there in Medina, and he conquered it. So the very town that he grew up in was, was expelled from. He later came back with an army and conquered it. So Muhammad's death and the split, or the great split in Islam. Here's the way it began. Muhammad had no surviving son, and honestly it would have been probably best that way because we know many uh, military leaders in the past, which Muhammad was an excellent warrior. And he, he won. He was, he was, a, he was a winner. Uh, he truly had, I guess we could say, the eye of the tiger. He, he was a master at de- desert warfare. Uh, as far as getting results, he was a top-notch raider in the desert warfare fashion. But he had no surviving son. And often in history, when you have a leader like that, they have a son who's going to become heir to the throne or to the movement. The son is quickly uh, assassinated. But there, there was a man named Ali bin Talib, who was the husband of Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, who claimed that Muhammad designated him as the successor. But yet the majority selects a man named Abu Bakr, Muhammad's father-in-law, instead. So... Here's where we see the beginning of the division between Ali's minority, minority the Shia, and Abu Bakr's majority, the Sunni. Ali becomes caliph in AD 656, but he is stabbed to death shortly by another rival group. And then in AD 680, there's basically a Sunni versus Shia showdown. The Sunnis, in a classic move, of desert warfare. The Sunnis cut off the Shia's water supply and then slaughter them. And then they carry the head of Hussein, the leader at that time, they carry his head on a lance all the way around the city. And something for us to know today so that we can understand some of the deep, I guess we could say, bitterness uh, between the Sunnis and the Shiites is the 10th day of Muharram, Celebrated every year, is celebrated every year with self-mutilation within Shiite Islam. And there is often a high chance of violence on this day. For example, November 4th, 1979, the same day in the Muslim calendar, the American embassy was taken over in Tehran, Iran. Uh, There's a friend of mine, we'll just once again leave his name off the books, uh, we'll say he lives in the great republic of Texas, that, that great country that is doing so well economically. Um, worked for an oil company. And when he was in Saudi Arabia, this guy, American black guy, I mean, he's American as they come, just here, good old guy from the U.S., absolutely brilliant. He was so smart that he was able to basically teach himself how to read and speak Arabic. Now, if you've ever seen Arabic, most of us look at it and they say, we say, I'm not even going to try. I may, you know, try to learn a little Spanish or something like that. But this, I mean, 
Brilliant. So he worked for a large oil company, and he said, Jeff, I was able to buy the traditional garb, the traditional clothing, and because I'm black, I'm not you know, just a white guy from America or Europe, he says, I was able to go places outside of the protected compound that most of the European or Western guys would come in and work uh, with the oil companies there. He says, I was able to just go throughout the towns because I they, they would look at me and say, well, he's probably just a, a North African or an African Muslim. And, and since I was able to understand and speak the language, I could blend in. And he said, there were certain festivals within Shiite Islam throughout the year, and this would be one of them, he said to where there would be self-mutilation, to where they would lacerate their backs with knives and so forth, and a very, very, very unnerving experience. So that's just something when we see on the news that a Sunni mosque was bombed and a Shiite group claimed responsibility and so forth and so on, it goes back to where at the very beginning of Islam, after the death of Muhammad, it was cutthroat from both sides. If you see there uh, on the map, uh, the division of, or the distribution rather, of Shiite Islam in comparison to Sunni Islam, Iraq and Iran are primarily Shiite. And one of the interesting things is that Saddam Hussein was from which group? He was a Sunni, which is so interesting because Iraq is primarily Shiite. And uh, what we're going to do is probably have to stop here for tonight, but we will list these very quickly, and next time we get together, we will break them down. The five uh, pillars of Islam, and Islam simply means submission to Allah or submission to God. Number one, confession of God's oneness. Number two, ritual prayer, salat, as it's called. Number three, mandatory charity, zakat, which is about 2.5% of your income, which is, according to the surveys and the statistics, a lot higher than most what most Baptists give, but we're just going to move on. Number four, observance of Ramadan, which this year, Ramadan is July 8th and through uh, August 7th. And then number five, pilgrimage to Mecca called the Hajj. And we'll break this down in the next two sessions, but the concept of jihad and whether that is a physical struggle against unbelievers or whether that is also, and or I guess we could say primarily, an inward struggle against the lower nature, what Christians would call sin. So I think it's very helpful for us to understand that by way of contrast, Jesus, in the beginning, left the job to his disciples of making disciples of every single nation. In other words, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all ethnicities, pantata ethne in the Greek, all of them. And the way that you do that is you preach the gospel. You love people. You speak about uh, every aspect that Jesus told them uh, to speak about. Whereas in Islam, Muhammad was the leader in, if we want to put it very simply, killing his enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus' original disciples went into all the world, and every single one of them, from what we know, except for the Apostle John, they died. They were killed by their persecutors, whereas Muhammad, in his life, 
He was the one who picked up the sword and lived by it. Whereas Jesus says, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And what we see from the very, very beginnings in Islam with the Sunni and Shia division, that if something, if you're, if something is crafted in violence, regardless of what people may say, because most of us know that old southern adage where a dad will sit there and he's drunk out of his mind, but he'll lean over the couch and point at his 15-year-old son and say, do what I say and not what I do. That is an absolutely valueless statement. People look at what other people do, not what they say. It's what you do that truly defines you, and it's what you do that will define your movement. So for us... We, we understand Christianity to be a gospel of love, and that it is. So it's so hard for many people from the U.S. and from the Western world, having that context, even if they're not Christians. Most people believe that, 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 that religions teach, um, I guess we, well, we could say tolerance and so forth. That's not the case in Islam from the very beginning, because you have Muslims killing other Muslims. And one final note before we close here, is that there is... I guess we could say much evidence that the early Muslims were, were, were very reticent. They were very hesitant to slaughter other Muslims, but yet when push came to shove, there was slaughter. There was death. There was violence. And if something is born out of violence, then why should it surprise anyone if the violence continues to this day? And I'm not even speaking about terrorism. I'm speaking about religiously motivated, going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, reprisals based upon an original tragedy. So what should we do with this understanding of Islam? Well, we should do our best to study it, to understand it, so that we can have an intelligent conversation with Muslims. But we need to guard against any type of bitterness on our part. Because most of what we see on the news, most of what we hear from different sources, crafts us in such a way that we will not care where a Muslim spends eternity. And may it break our hearts for those Muslims who do not yet accept Jesus, not just as a prophet, but as Savior and Lord. And may it be that we at Rocky Mount Baptist Church reach out to Muslims. Thank you guys. And uh, we will see you next week.